following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, we're looking this morning in, uh, in Matthew, uh, and uh, we will be uh, actually kind of summarizing chapters 19 and 20, but I'm not going to read all of that. Um, we're just going to pick up at the end of chapter 20 in verses uh, 29 through 34. So if you want to follow along in your Bible or on the screen as we read Matthew, 29, uh, Matthew 20, 29 through 34. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Um, we see in, in this account uh, this, these two uh, blind men uh, really know how to ask exactly the right question. And as we'll see in a minute, in these two chapters, they're kind of tied together thematically and in some other ways. And, and in each case, they're asking questions. And an important fact of life is that in order to get the right answer, it's important to ask the right question. So right now, I get the joy of helping a 10-year-old uh, do, do her homework. And uh, one of those is, is, a lot of times, is math. And I was never really good at math, so this may be the very last year I can help, really, because after this, it's going to get worse. Um, and, and, you know, my favorite, my favorite are word problems. Do you guys like word problems, you know? You know what word problems are? Like, you know, if a train leaves Bangkok traveling 60 kilometers an hour and it passes two cows eating grass in a field, how many people will eat lunch at KFC? Right? <laughs> word problems. And the answer is, right, 42. Of course, everybody knows that, right? So uh, <laughs> I love word problems. And, you know, the thing with word problems is you have to get the, you have to get the question right. Like, Am I supposed to subtract? Am I supposed to add? Is it a combination? Right. So it's really important. And as I'm helping uh, music with her homework, uh, that really is the issue: is you know, making sure she's asking the right question, uh, so that she's applying the right math to, to solve. Right. And it's really uh, true not only with math, but really of all of life, that uh, that we we need to be asking the right questions, uh, specifically of God, uh, when we come to Him in prayer, when we come. To, to, the, to Scripture, right? when, we, when, we, when we come to God with needs about our, our walk or our life, uh, what it is we feel that we need or want from God, it's, it really is, it does matter that you ask the right question. And uh, it's interesting as we look at these passages um, in, in uh, chapters 19 and 20, a lot of them are asking questions, but really uh, none of them ask the right question. Until this final story. And so this final account of the two blind men kind of ties together what's going on in chapters 19 and 20. And we see that these two guys actually really nail it. They ask the right question. And, 
And because of that, God, God works. God blesses in a very unique and special way in their life. Um, we know that these two chapters are, are kind of linked together because they begin and end with very similar accounts. And it's a tool that's used oftentimes in, in narratives to, uh, uh, to tie a section together by these bookends. So uh, when you look at uh, chapter 19, verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, he went away from Galilee, entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed. Because that's how it starts off. Uh, and it's, it's a literary device that, that says this is the beginning of a section, and, and we just read um, it ends in the same way. And, and Jesus went out from Jericho, and a great crowd followed him, and he heals, right? So that's the, the, the bookends. Um, uh, and, uh, and in between are these stories, right? Uh, each account uh, marked actually by very similar themes. Uh, as I said, in each one, they're asking uh, a question or a request of Jesus. They want some kind of answer or some kind of help. Also, we see repeatedly that uh, the theme of the kingdom comes up. In fact, in almost every account, uh, it talks about the kingdom of heaven or it's implied. Um, but, but the blind men get it right, right? They're the ones whose question really is offset. And, and we'll see that, especially as we see it against the backdrop of these other questions. So I want to take just a minute and stitch together these other stories real briefly, just survey them. Uh, we don't need to go into a lot of detail because we've been looking at them. But just to see how these guys' questions c- compares with all the other questions. And hopefully it will guide us in how we... Uh, what, what is it we are seeking from God? What is it we want him to help us with? Um, so, so let's uh, just briefly again summarize a lot of questions. And it starts in verse 19, uh, chapter 19, uh, beginning with the Pharisees coming, asking if it's, lawful, uh, for get to, if it's lawful to get divorced for any reason. Right? Now, of course, they knew it was lawful to be divorced, but that wasn't their question. Their, their question was, can you get divorced for just any good reason? Remember, we talked about that, like burning breakfast. Um, and, uh, and, and we know in this account that the Pharisees were testing Jesus. So it wasn't like they really wanted to know the answer for their own benefit, because they didn't know. They were putting Jesus to the test, because they thought they were superior to Jesus. They thought they knew more than Jesus did. And so... Um, of course, that's a sign that if you really want to ask the right questions, you need to ask with the right motive, uh, not just to prove you're better or to get into an argument. Uh, that's not helpful. And so, so these guys come with, with wrong motives, and, um, and they feel that they're smug in their own righteousness, that they know they keep the law, and they're convinced that they are, they are perfect before, before God because they have diligently, diligently kept the, the law of Moses to the tiniest detail, right? And, 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 and Jesus gives a very interesting answer. He says, the kingdom is not built on the law. He says, you, you're looking at the law, you're trying to interpret the law properly, but Jesus goes all the way back to creation. And he talks about marriage and divorce in the context of God's design and purpose for creation. And uh, really the idea here is that, uh, that the kingdom of heaven... Uh, is the fulfillment of God's design and purpose. And so in the kingdom, marriage must be patterned after God's design, not just after some exception that may, may have been in the law of Moses. And in, chapter, in verse uh, 12 of ni- chapter 19, he says, There are eunuchs who have been 
made themselves for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, uh, they have made themselves single, in other words, for the sake of the kingdom. And so uh, the point here Jesus is making is that um, they, they were missing the boat. And in fact, he concludes by saying, and here's the thing, you ask, you ask, you ask the wrong question, and you may get an answer you're not expecting. And the answer that Jesus basically ends with is, you are not righteous, you are not innocent, you are guilty of sin, and not just any sin, but you're guilty of adultery. Uh, like for the Pharisees, that would have been really bad news, okay? because they, they thought, well, maybe I was guilty of you know, forgetting to tithe the mint one day. <laughs> you know, uh, Now they're guilty of adultery, which is like on the, the top of their list, right? So, um, so that's that question. So then, then uh, the next account, uh, people are bringing their children to Jesus. And of course, they don't actually ask a question, but it's implied, will you bless my children? And uh, Jesus welcomes them, but his disciples rebuke the crowd saying, get, get away. Jesus doesn't have time for little children. But Jesus says, uh, the kingdom belongs to such as these. Right? And the point Jesus is making is that in the kingdom, the kingdom is about the little, the least, and the last. Not those who think they deserve it like the Pharisees, but the kingdom is for those who know they don't deserve it. They're the last, the little. But those are the ones that God uh, draws, welcomes into the kingdom. Uh, then the next account, uh, the rich young man comes asking Jesus a question. And you remember his question is, "What, uh, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Uh, and this man uh, thought he was probably mostly there. Uh, he, probably like the Pharisees, had this idea that uh, he was... He was 99% there, but like, what, what good deed is missing? Like, like, what's the one thing I need to do to kind of put me over the top of my goodness, right? So that I will deserve and earn and, and merit the kingdom. And of course, again, ask the wrong question. You're going you're to get an answer that you don't expect. And Jesus says, if you would be perfect, because that's what you're asking, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Uh, and he goes away sad. And the disciples are also quite shocked by this answer because Jesus says, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will, will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is shocking news to the disciples. And they say, well, then how can, how can anybody be saved? And Jesus says, well, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. And the point there is that um, it's, the kingdom is not about a place you go as a result of doing good things or doing the right things. Rather, uh, it is something that you become a part of by a change of heart. And Jesus shows this man that his heart is off. Right? His heart is, is, is wicked. And he doesn't just need to do a good deed. He needs a complete change of heart. He needs to be transformed from a person who's selfish and greedy to a person who is, uh, from his heart, generous and caring. Um, out of this uh, story, at the end of it, uh, the disciples themselves have their own question. And it triggers for them a question. And their question is, look, we've left everything to follow you, Peter says, right? We've given up everything. We've sacrificed a great amount to follow you. Uh, what will we have? What will we get? Right? What's in it for us? 
Also, kind of an interesting question, and this coming not from a seeker like the rich young man, but from one of Jesus' own disciples, um, who, uh, is, is it really a good question? Is that an appropriate question? Well, Jesus answers them and tells them, uh, you, will, you will rule with me on twelve thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. And not only that, but everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold uh, back and will inherit eternal life. Um, so, uh, so that sounds good. Jesus kind of answers their question. But again, when you ask the wrong question, you get an answer you don't expect. And he ends with this cryptic statement. He says, oh, and by the way, many who are first will be last and the last first. And Jesus kind of implies here, uh, you think you're first. Uh, let's rethink this. You may not be uh, at the top as you think you are. And he tells a parable. And it's the parable, remember, he says, for the kingdom of heaven, here's that phrase again, the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And if you remember, all, day, all through the day, the master goes out to the market and he hires whoever he can find. Nine o'clock in the morning, at noon, at three in the afternoon, and even at five o'clock with only an hour left of work, he hires people and sends them into his, into his vineyard to work. And if you remember, we talked about this. If, you, if, you, if it's five o'clock and you didn't get hired yet, there's probably really good reasons why you didn't get hired. You're probably like 98 years old, and it's like, yeah, this guy can't work. Or you're uh, crippled or lame or, or, or weak, Right? And so, uh, but, but God, but the, the master hires them all. And what's even more remarkable is that when it comes time to pay, he pays them all equally. And if you remember, the, the laborers hired first did not like that. The first were jealous of the last, right? That they were treated equally. And, and uh, the punchline is this. He says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And the point Jesus is making here is that the kingdom is a gift granted by the generosity of God and by his grace, not on the basis of how much you have worked or even suffered or how much you've given up. So so he says, and he he ends it again, he says, so the, uh, the last will be first and the first last. And he's he's warning his disciples. The kingdom is made up of the last and the least. Not because they deserve it, but because of God's incredible generosity that he rewards and he blesses. Um, Then we come to actually uh, the one account that's not actually a question. Matthew 17 and 19, um, Jesus tells them why he's going up to Jerusalem. Uh, but the interesting thing here is it's a question they should have been asking. Right? They should have been asking, Jesus, why are you going up to Jerusalem? He has his face set. He is focused. He is uh, with a, a clear goal to go to Jerusalem. And they should have been asking, Jesus, why? And Jesus said, I'll tell you why. Even though you didn't ask, I'll tell you why. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. All right? they, 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 
Maybe they didn't ask that question because they really didn't want to know the answer, right? They didn't, and, and even when Jesus told them, they didn't really get it. Um, and then after that comes the last question before our account of the blind man. Best of all, the disciples come, specifically James and John, James and John, along with the mom, their mother. And, and here's this question. Um, uh, Jesus, will you, say, will you say the word that the two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom? Jesus, will you make my sons the highest ranking officials in your kingdom? Put them at the very top in the highest seat of honor in a place superior over everybody else, right? That's what I'm asking of you. And of course, uh, you remember the other disciples were kind of upset about that, and Jesus pulls them aside and he says, you know, the kingdom of God is different, right? Uh, it is not about position or status. It's not seeking power or superior, superiority over others. That's not the nature of the kingdom. But the kingdom is a place where you serve others, where you love others by selfish, selflessly serving them. Even as the Son of Man is going up to Jerusalem, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right? So those are the questions. So you get the picture here. A lot of people are really asking the wrong kind of questions. Uh, questions that are very self-serving. Uh, questions that are very judgmental and critical of Jesus. Uh, questions that are just missing the mark of what's really important. But it ends with this amazing story, and, and let's look at what they say. Right? What is their question? Uh, well, the scene here is that Jesus is crossed over the Jordan River. He was on the on the east side of the Jordan, and now he's here in the Jordan Valley, and it's about a 3,000-foot climb up to Jerusalem. And at the bottom of the climb, the last town that they pass through is Jericho. And there's this massive crowd, and the crowd is there. Partly uh, there was a crowd, a group that followed Jesus from Galilee. But now they're being joined with pilgrims, thousands of pilgrims probably, who are headed up to Jerusalem for Passover. And, and, and there's a lot of excitement about Jesus. And, and as we see in the next chapter, there's a lot of anticipation that he is the Messiah. And he's the king who's entering the capital, Jerusalem, right? And so this crowd is passing by uh, uh, Jericho. And uh, there's these two blind men uh, sitting along the roadside begging. And this, this may have been like, for these two guys, this could have been like kind of like their Christmas. Uh, once a year... Thousands, actually tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of pilgrims would pass by. If you're a beggar, this is like the this is like the jackpot, right? Because you got thousands of people going by, and uh, part of the whole tradition was giving alms to the poor. Hey, that's me, right? And so they're they're probably begging for alms, and this is a strategic time for them. Maybe they made their whole year's income in this this season of, of pilgrims passing by. But on this day, they hear that in the crowd is Jesus, and they have heard of him. And they, they, they know something about him. And uh, even though they are blind, as is often in the case of the Gospels, it's the blind who really see who Jesus is. Right? And so they cry out, they shout out, uh, Lord, have mercy. And they probably are yelling this at the top of their voices. Maybe the two of them together in unison, 
Lord, have mercy uh, over the noise of this massive crowd. Right? Uh, and there's something uh, urgent, right? There's a, a certain kind of urgency in, in their cry. Because they desperately need help. They are blind and they would love to be delivered from that. They would love to have their eyes open and see. Right? They would love to not be begging on the roadside. And uh, they somehow know who Jesus is. And they believe that he's the Messiah, as we see. They cry out, uh, um, Lord, have mercy. Son of David, a messianic title that they use to, to, to identify their understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. And certainly the Messiah has the power to heal them. And so they are, they are in desperate need and they cry out urgently. Uh, but notice they don't cry out with some expectation or demand that they have a right to. It says they cry out, Lord, have mercy. What is, what is mercy? It's a unique word used in the, in the Bible. And it's really a, a cry of help or for help. From someone with a great need, right? So that's them. They have this huge need. They're blind. They they need help. Uh, they can't fix themselves, right? They they are in many respects helpless. And so uh, mercy always implies somebody who is really helpless, uh, who can't solve their own problem. Uh, they can't do anything about uh, about their need. Um, but they cry out. When you cry out for mercy, there's no sense of obligation on the person you're requesting. It's not like, like Jesus has any right or duty to help them. Right? They call for mercy. It's, it's undeserved favor. It's saying, God, I, Jesus, I need your help, and I'm hoping for your undeserved kindness. Not because I have a right to it, not because I'm a good person, not because I have done all my good deeds, right? Like, like, like the rich young guy. No, no, he, they know what they would get would be just... Grace. It would be just God's goodness, Jesus' goodness towards them. They don't deserve it. Um, and, they're, they're, and the shouting is a, is a sign of this urgent need, right? Uh, just a quick question. Like when we pray, do you put God to sleep with your prayers? Like, like, like I fall asleep with my prayers, right? Or is there an urgency in your prayers that's driven by desperate need? By a desperate call for mercy, right? Uh, these guys shout out the top of their lungs. I would do it, except for I'll, I'll hurt your ears and I'll blow out the microphone. That would be bad, right? Uh, they're shouting with the top of their lungs because it's urgent. They are desperate for Jesus. And in their desperation, it's one of great faith because they are confident as the Messiah, he can help them. And, of course, the crowd rebukes them. Very similar, the disciples did the same thing when they brought the little ones, the children, to Jesus, right? And the, 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 the crowd says, be quiet, shut up, stop, silent, right? Uh, why? We don't know. Is it because they thought Jesus was too important for them and they were the last? They were among the, the group that was the least and the last and Jesus didn't have time for them, Maybe. Maybe uh, they felt that Jesus was in a hurry, and it was a long day's journey, and a steep climb, 3,000-foot climb. It was a treacherous day ahead. It's like, no, we don't have time for this. You know, we got, we got stuff to do. Jesus needs to get to Jerusalem. He doesn't have time for you. Uh, maybe they just didn't like that these guys are being loud. They're being inappropriate. They're not doing what's socially acceptable. Uh, we don't know. 
But whatever the, the thinking or idea of the crowd, Jesus does not agree. Says so he stops and he calls them to him. Right? Uh, what's amazing is that Jesus always makes time for those in need and for those who call out for his help. Right? Think of a time in the Gospels where somebody calls out for Jesus' help and he says, I can't really help you right now, I'm too busy. Is there, is there any account like that? Right? Ever? doesn't matter if it's children or the blind or the, the demon-possessed. It doesn't matter how urgent and how busy Jesus' schedule is. He always makes time for those who call out for his help. Always. No matter how little or how last they may be in the world's eyes. And so, so Jesus calls him. He says, come. What do you want me to do for you? So Jesus here gives the first question, uh, same as in the preceding account with uh, James and John and their mom. Jesus asks first, what do you want? And so he asks them, what do you want me to do for you? And uh, you can just imagine this picture, this huge crowd all of a sudden grinds to a halt, people bumping into each other, you know, rear-ending each other, as all of a sudden the whole parade has stopped. And uh, maybe there's quiet for a second. And Jesus says, what do you want? And here's their simple request. Lord, let our eyes be opened. Of course, for us it seems obvious. Well, of course that's what they want. Why does Jesus even ask the question, right? It's obvious this is what they want, right? But it wasn't obvious, and it was important that they ask the right question. Uh, This question came out of their genuine need and their place of uh, desperate help. Right? Lord, let our eyes be open. And, and just compare this. Just back up just one story. Just compare this with the same exact scenario. Lord, uh, what do you want from me, James and John? I want to be the best in your kingdom. Make me number one. Right? But these guys don't ask that. They ask a simple, simple request. Lord, open our eyes so we can see. And notice what Jesus says to them. Uh, in pity, Jesus in pity touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Now in, our, in, in, in the English language, in modern times, pity may not have such a great meaning or connotation. Uh, but it is a, a fitting word. Uh, and and it, is, it, it is a word that uh, requires somebody who is in need of mercy. Like somebody who's pitiable. It means, well, they're kind of pathetic, right? You you feel sorry for them because they they are in need and they can't help themselves. And that was these guys. And Jesus felt pity. And pity is is a response of compassion on somebody who's in great need. Not out of duty or obligation, but feeling moved to help them uh, because you care. Because their situation is so poor, so, so down there, that you're moved to help. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He is moved, not because he has to or because he's obligated, but out of his own heart of compassion that moves him to meet this need that he sees. So we see uh, this powerful idea that their great need is met with the great compassion and power of Christ. Right? Their need is met with Jesus' compassion and his ability to save. 
He is moved to help them. And the story ends. He, he heals them. Immediately they recovered their sight and they followed him. Now that could mean a lot of things, but given all that Jesus has talked about in these last two chapters, uh, that's a powerful word. Because Jesus has made it clear that the kingdom life is a life of, of discipleship. That if you want to be in the kingdom, it means you follow Jesus. And these two guys do that. They follow him. And this is really what it means to be in the kingdom. Uh, not just to go where he's going, but to live like Jesus lived. To copy and imitate his life. To adopt the purposes and priorities and values of the kingdom as their own. And, and so they become followers. Um, and here's a great truth, uh, a principle that comes out of us. There, there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. Right? That, that should be seen clearly through these two chapters. As Jesus confronts them over and over again, it's not about doing a good deed. You can't. There's nothing you can do to earn salvation or deserve it. But here's the principle. Once you are saved, once you've received his kindness and grace, his mercy, uh, we should follow him. But there's an expectation that we follow him. And obedience before the cross is vain and empty. But obedience after the cross is required. Right? That's what it means to follow him. Once we've been transformed by the power of the gospel. All right, so, so this is the right question. Right? They get the right question. They get the right answer. Uh, they don't get some answer they didn't expect. Uh, they get grace and they are helped. Um, it is the right question. Unlike the Pharisees who were trying to justify themselves, right? Who were trying to test Jesus. Not like the rich young ruler who just wanted to feel good about himself, about doing one more good deed to put him over the top, right? Not like the disciples who want to be great in the kingdom, right? Uh, but open my eyes that I may see. So let me just apply this. What does it mean for us? Uh, you might be saying, well, I'm not blind. Um, or are you? <laughs> Am I, right? Maybe we have our physical eyes, but the whole point of these two chapters is what? Well, there's a whole lot of blindness here, right? They're asking the right question. The Pharisees are actually blind to their own situation, and so is the rich young ruler. And so this is the question that we all need to ask. Lord, have mercy on us. Open our eyes that we may see. Uh, and let me just uh, highlight three things that I think this means to apply this in our life. Opening our eyes, first of all, means that we ask God to help us see our great need for Christ. Our great need for Christ. Do we really, really know and understand how desperately we need him? Um, but that was the problem of the Pharisees. They thought they were keeping the law of Moses. They thought they were righteous. They really genuinely believed they did not need Jesus or his help or his teaching. Um, and yet Jesus, in his answer, graciously shows them, you are guilty. And not just of random sin, you are guilty of adultery because of the way you have mistreated and sent away your wives, right? And, and, and the amazing thing is for those Pharisees, there was nothing they could do about it. Like if you were a Pharisee and you divorced your wife and you 
thought you were righteous and all of a sudden you found out that you're guilty of adultery, you're done. Like there is nothing you can do about it. Your only hope is Jesus. Right? What about the rich young man? He thought he was a good person. Thought he just needed a couple more good deeds to put him over the top and he would be perfect. And Jesus shows him, no, you, you are self-centered and greedy and your wealth is an idol. You are an idol worshiper. And the problem is not your good deeds. The problem is your very heart, which is corrupt and evil and has to be changed. You need a new heart, dude. That's your only hope. And same thing, there is nothing he can do about it. There's nothing he can do to change his own heart. He goes away sad and dejected because he is in bondage to his possessions. They own him. And he's a slave. And there is nothing he can do about it. What is his only hope? Jesus, right? Jesus is his only hope. And even the disciples' request for greatness in the kingdom was off. Right? Uh, It was off. It was misunderstanding that the kingdom is a kingdom of grace based on God's generosity, not on their deserving it, not on their hard work or their labor or their sacrifice. Uh, I think we need to be praying, Lord, open our eyes to see the depth of our need for you. Right? And one of the reasons I believe the two blind men were able to ask the right question is because they knew their need. Right? One of the reasons we ask the wrong questions is because we don't really recognize how desperately we need Jesus every day. We start off with that song this morning. Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Are those just nice words in a song? Or do we really believe that? Do we really think that? Lord, I, I need you every hour. Okay. Um, the blind men know they are among the least and the last. They know Jesus doesn't owe him anything. But they cry out for mercy. Okay. Second thing we, sh- we need to pray, Lord, open our eyes that we might see uh, your great love. Right? Um, I don't think, I know that I do not see how and understand the depth of Jesus' love for me. Right? Now, of course, in my head, I have the right theology. God is love, and I know that he's loving. But do I really see it? Right? Do I really see the extent and depth of God's love for me? I think many times we don't. Um, and yet, here we see this great picture of Jesus who welcomes the little children not because they're important, not because they have rank or status in society, but precisely because they are just little children. It says, The kingdom of heaven belongs to those like these who come humbly as, as nothing. And, and Jesus wraps his arm around them. Like, do we, do we sense how much Jesus welcomes us as little children and how much he wraps his arms around us and he blesses us because of his great love for us. Uh, I love that picture of the, uh, the vineyard owner who, who has compassion for the guy who hasn't got hired at 5 o'clock. You know? The guy who's got no skill, no strength, uh, no reason why they would hire him. 
And yet he has compassion for them. And he, in his love and generosity, blesses them just like everybody else. Right? That's the heart of God. Um, and in this story, Jesus has pity. He has compassion on the blind, the blind men. Right? Uh, do you have a sense of that? Uh, God's love for you. That Jesus always makes time for those in need, for those who call out for help. He's never too busy, and we are never too little or too small or too much the last that Jesus will make time for us. And such is his love for us. Oh, that, Lord, that the Lord would open our eyes to see his love for us. And lastly, I think we need to ask that he would open our eyes to perceive the true nature of the kingdom. Uh, like the disciples just were not getting this, right? They, they really didn't understand what the kingdom was about. Um, the kingdom is not about law. It's about restoring God's grand design and purpose in creation. Right? Um, uh, God's kingdom is about the least and the last, not the greatest and the first, right? Um, the kingdom is not a place you go, but it is the kind of person you are. It's probably not even the work you do that matters so much. It's who you are. Like, do you embody kingdom values like Jesus did? Well, then the test of that, of course, is do we serve like Jesus did? Do we live unselfishly like Jesus did? That's what it means to be in the kingdom. That's the values of the kingdom, right? Not power not getting my own way, not even getting rewards, although God will bless us with abundant rewards. Uh, It's a kingdom of grace, right? And it's a kingdom where we are to live out that grace towards others and serving and caring and giving to others. Um, Throughout Scripture, this is a theme, right? Um, People are blind to their own condition. And here's, here's the funny thing. Well, maybe it's not that funny. But isn't it interesting how well I can see all of those problems in other people? Right? Like your spouse? Oh, yeah, boy, do they, I can pray for them. Boy, do I know how blind they are, right? People I work with, that coworker, oh, oh man, if they would just see how stupid they are. Like, how could they be so blind, right? Um. And yet somehow we think we see with 2020 vision. Like we've got ourselves figured out. I know, I've got it all figured out. Right? Um, I'd say that given the whole weight of Scripture, and, and I'd say it's pretty likely that we have no idea how blind we are. No idea. Right? We have convinced ourselves that we see when we do not. Right? And so this is a great prayer. And I think the point of these two chapters climaxes in this passage, and that's kind of the point. Like, this is the prayer. I desperately need Jesus. And, and praise God, he, he desperately wants to meet me in his love and goodness. And he wants us to, to grow into be, becoming kingdom people. Right? Let's pray. Lord God, we... Um, we ask that you would, uh, you would show us how blind we are. Lord, give us some sense of how easily we deceive ourselves. How easily 
like the Pharisees and the rich young ruler and even the disciples, uh, we've convinced ourselves of how wonderful we are. Uh, Or maybe to the other extreme, we've convinced ourselves how terrible we are. Um, And we don't see grace. We don't see your love. We don't see the transforming work of the cross in our life. And Lord, we, we know the goal is not to go around beating ourselves up. But Lord, we, we, we pray that we would have eyes that see clearly the truth. The truth about who we are. But also the great truth about who you are and what you want to do to change us. That our problem is just not that we don't try hard enough. Our problem is we need to be transformed. Changed in our very heart and the very depth of our being to become people who are like Christ. Lord, help us see we can't do this on our own, that it can only be done through the work and power of Christ in our life as we submit ourselves to you and as we follow you. So, Lord, we we pray this prayer. Lord, open our eyes. Help us see the truth. Help us see you. And, And we thank you that you have given your Holy Spirit as a pledge and a promise to do just that. And so we pray for that ministry and working of your spirit in our heart um, to reveal to us uh, your promises, but also to reveal to us our own sin, our own brokenness, our own self-deception. So we, we trust you with these things and we pray earnestly in Jesus' name. Amen.
You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.